Well, good morning. My name is Paul. For those of you who haven't met me, we're in the final Sunday of our senior pastor Tom's uh, much-deserved vacation and brief hiatus from preaching. He'll be back here next week, so today I get to bring this message, which I'm very excited about. Uh, We're continuing through our summer series called Road Trip, uh, our spiritual journey with Christ, kind of a just metaphor for our walk with Jesus in day-to-day life. Um, we're using various uh, road trip metaphors to talk about our growth in Christ. So today I get to talk about the scenic route, taking the scenic route. And uh, I think the title is Seeing Beauty and Experiencing Joy. I'm going to focus mainly on seeing beauty, but I believe there's a ton of joy wrapped up in that, and seeing beauty ultimately leads to tremendous joy that I hope we'll see. But we'll focus mostly on seeing beauty. Uh, I want to start with a, a little story. I realize Pastor Tom has used to take like real road trips with his family, like cross-country, so he has all these stories of awesome road trips, and I don't really have those kind of stories. My family didn't do that growing up, but I will tell you about a trip I took one time on a road. So uh, I want to <laughs> show you a, a quick picture um, to back up a little bit. My wife Liz and I, we serve in campus ministry with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and for 10 years we served on campuses in Boston, and at the end of those 10 years, we were able to get a six-month sabbatical which was much needed. We had been going very hard, kind of slightly overdriven people to begin with, and we were in Boston, which is an overdriven environment. Uh, So you add that all together, we really needed this. And through an amazing act of God's kindness to us, we ended up uh, living in a cottage in Gloucester for that period. And this is where we lived. So we got a couple of pictures of what was essentially, this was our backyard during our sabbatical. We would step out the back porch, and this is where we were. We were on the rocks, and, and it faced west over the ocean, so we would see the sunset. We've got one more picture, I believe. So this is kind of this is where we were. So you can imagine, we were really excited to go there. So I'm going to tell you about our, our trip up. I remember we loaded up our stuff, and we, we left Boston to move up to Gloucester for, for a brief period. And uh, they say, you know, you can take the driver out of Boston, but you can't take Boston out of the driver. And after a decade of Boston driving, I was very immersed in Boston driving culture. And that that continued as we headed up to Gloucester. And it's interesting, the last several miles of our trip up to this house, it's on one long, windy road. And as we were getting up there, I was just so eager to get there, couldn't wait. But, But while we were on that long, windy road, we were stuck behind this guy. He was just putzing along, you know, several miles per hour below the speed limit, you can imagine that. And I was just getting so frustrated, so aggravated. I was like, will you move? And every time he'd step on the brakes, I'd grip the wheel and be like, come on, buddy. Jeez. You know, I just wanted to get there. So I was just aggravated and tense the whole time. And we finally get there. Well, come to find out that that trip, that long, windy road, it's actually a really scenic drive. It's beautiful. It's the scenic route. But I didn't notice that day because all I was doing was staring straight ahead at the car in front of me, angry at him, and seeing him as an obstacle to getting to where I wanted to go. All I cared about was accomplishing what I wanted to do and getting there as fast as I could. I missed the whole thing. Well, after a while of living here, uh, things started to change for me. I did slow down quite a bit and eventually started going out of my way to take the scenic route as much as I could. In fact, I became that guy who would drive kind of slow down the road because there's so much beautiful stuff to see and it was worth taking in. Sometimes I would take, go out of my way to take a less efficient route to get to where I was going so that I could take the most scenic route that I could possibly take. Uh, the experience of, of seeing beauty was, pos- was totally transformative for me. I believe it can be for, for any of us. Now taking time to uh, 
appreciate beauty in the natural world, appreciate beauty in general. It's not a uniquely Christian thing. Anyone can do it. And lots of people encourage us to do it. We have uh, secular prophets like Ferris Bueller who said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. And it's a common idiom in our culture. You've got to stop and smell the roses. And people say things like this. And yeah, experiencing beauty, it's not a uniquely Christian thing. Anyone can do it. It's part of the common grace of God that Jesus said God causes the sun to shine on the good and the evil. He causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. So beauty is kind of a free gift, open to anybody. There's no qualifications, nothing you have to do. Anyone can experience it. And overall, no matter what, Experiencing and seeing beauty is generally a really good thing. It's always somewhat positive and and somewhat pleasant to a degree. But I would argue that for the Christian, for someone who stops and looks and sees the beauty of the created world with an awareness of God, it can be positively transforming. Not just good, not just pleasant, but transformative. It can lead us to a deep knowledge and experience of God that we might not otherwise have. I joked that when we went up to Gloucester, I was going to practice the spiritual discipline of staring at the ocean. And it turned out to not be such a joke. It's kind of a real thing. As I spent time just marveling and looking and observing God's creation, it was a real transformative thing in my life. And I would argue that stopping and and experiencing God's beauty with an awareness of who God is uh, opens us up to tremendous spiritual growth. So now I live in Worcester, It's not as beautiful, and I'm not on sabbatical anymore, quite busy, but I still make it a regular practice to seek out beauty and see it and ponder it in an intentional way as much as I possibly can, and I would encourage all of us to do the same thing. Now, I'm not going to talk today about how to do that, how to see beauty, how to experience beauty. There's a limitless ways we can do that. Different things connect with different ones of us. I'm not going to prescribe how. I think you guys can think of how to see beauty and notice beauty. But I'm going to talk about why. Why is it important? Why is it worth doing? And what does it have to do with our spiritual journey in Jesus? For our key scripture today, I'm going to look actually at the book of Job, the tail end of the book of Job. You might think, well, that's kind of a weird choice. Uh, You know, this upbeat series, road trip, the scenic route. Isn't Job kind of a downer? Well, I don't really think so. So bear with me. Uh, but we're going to look at the tail end of the book of Job, chapters 38 to 42, kind of an overview of it. We're not, it's very long. We're not going to go through the whole thing. But just to bring you up to speed, up to this point in the book of Job, I'll summarize. So in the first two chapters of the book of Job, it's kind of a, the backdrop of the story, and we, we see in detail Job's immense suffering. Most of us, when we think of Job, we think of suffering. And chapters 1 and 2 detail the suffering that he encountered. Then... From chapters 3 all the way to chapter 37, Job and his friends are, are talking and trying to figure it out, trying to make sense of what's going on. So we have Job crying out and, and complaining and, and begging for answers that would reconcile what he knows of God with what he's going through. And he has these three friends who try to explain it to him, even though most of what they say proves to be not helpful at all. In total, there are 17 speeches between Job and his three friends. They just take turns delivering these speeches, these monologues, discourses, trying to explain life and explain God and explain what's going on. There's 17 speeches between Job and his friends, and then this other guy shows up, Elihu, and he speaks for six whole chapters. Just going on and on. He thinks he knows everything, and he's telling Job what he knows. 
So all these long speeches, these long discourses from, for 35 chapters of the Bible gets tedious, and at the end of it, they're no closer to understanding things than they were to begin with. And then, in chapter 38, where we'll pick up, God speaks. God breaks through, he breaks in, and God takes center stage, and God speaks. And if you re- read the book as a whole, it's very refreshing to have God break in and to hear God, what God has to say. So we'll start there at the beginning of chapter 38. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone, while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed the limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt." I'll stop there, but God goes on for some time asking Job questions like this, quite some time, and God implores Job to look, look at what I've made, look at what's around you, look at creation, look at the beauty in the natural world, and consider it, consider what you see, ponder it, and God points out all kinds of things to Job. He goes on to have Job, look at the earth, look at the sea, look at the morning, the dawn, Look at light and darkness. Look at uh, the snow and hail and lightning and wind and rain and thunderstorms, the desert, the wasteland. Look at grass, the lotus flower, poplar tree. Look at the dew, the ice, the frost. Look at the great stars and the great constellations in the sky. Look at clouds, lightning bolts, the patterns of flooding of the Nile River. Then he points out all sorts of creatures that he's made. Ask Job, consider the rooster, the lion, the lioness, the raven, the mountain goat, the doe and the fawn, the wild donkey, the wild ox, the ostrich, the horse, the hawk, the eagle, great sea creatures of the ocean. Ask him to consider all these things. Look at its movement. Look at its makeup. Look at its physiology. Look at the great strength of some of these creatures. And God could have gone on and on and on. There's almost limitless things he could have pointed out to Job to look at, to see, to ponder, and to consider. He takes him on a, a you know, tour of all the beautiful things that he's created. And again, there's almost limitless ways that we can observe and ponder the beauty of God's creation. Almost limitless ways, from the grand epic scale to the tiniest, most intricate and intimate details. And as Job ponders creation on both of these levels, the grand epic scale and the tiniest of details, Job comes to know the God who made it much more deeply. That's where looking at beauty can be transformative. I mean, when you look at beauty, it's pretty amazing. The things that we can look around and see are very amazing on their own terms. But where it goes beyond good to transformative is when we get to know the God behind it. The God who made these things, the God who created these things, the God who knows these things far better than we do, the God who is bigger and greater than any of these things. 
And that's where pondering beauty with an awareness of God can be transformative. We get to know not just the amazing things around us, we get to know the amazing God behind them. I found it transformative in my own walk with Jesus to stop and to ponder the beauty of what God's made. I believe it can be for all of us. So I'm going to talk about three things. They're in your, your handout if you want to follow along. Three things that can happen as we stop and enjoy God's beauty, as we stop and look and see and ponder what God has made. Three things that, that can happen. Uh, three things that uh, beauty can combat and three things that beauty can cultivate. So three C's. Three things beauty can do. Three things beauty combats, things that are harmful and can choke out our spiritual growth. And three things that beauty, looking at beauty can cultivate that lead us to a greater knowledge of Jesus. So first thing, beauty causes us to quiet down. To quiet down. You know, to put it a little more crassly, beauty causes us to stop and shut up. You can almost imagine God saying that in chapter 38. These guys have been jabbering on and on for 35 chapters, and God just, will you shut up? Let me talk. God, you know, after God does this and breaks in, you don't hear from Job's friends anymore the rest of the book. And Job doesn't have a whole lot to say himself from here on out. He quiets them down, and that's a good thing. And seeing beauty quiets us down. We have to be somewhat quiet and still to really appreciate beauty around us. You can't really uh, appreciate a beautiful thing if you're just busy running with your head down from one thing to the next. It's hard to appreciate the glory of a sunset if your nose is buried in your screen. It's kind of telling now that I think a lot of us, the first thing we do when we see something beautiful is we turn our back on it. We take a selfie. And to really appreciate beauty, you've got to slow down. And that's a good thing. It's a very good thing for us, particularly in our culture. We live in a hurried culture. Hurry, frenzy, stress are some of the things that mark the culture that we live in. We're always in a hurry, it seems. You know, we can do, the reality is we can do more things and do them faster than we used to be able to. So the assumption is, well, we should do more things and do them faster. That's not necessarily the case. And we become hurried, frantic people. And often Christians are just as hurried and frantic as the next person. Just as inattentive and partially paying attention as the next person. I have a great book I came across this past year I'd recommend to any of you. It's called Crazy Busy by Kevin DeYoung. It's a kind of a, a Christian perspective on busyness in our lives. It doesn't poo-poo busyness in and of itself, but when we get crazy busy, there's real dangers to our spiritual life. It can choke out our spiritual growth. And DeYoung says that you know, insane busyness and hurry can uh, rob us of our joy, that we're meant to have in Jesus. It can choke out the work that God's word is meant to do in our lives. And busyness can cover up the brokenness and the rot in our souls. We don't pay attention to it because we're so busy. And he says this, he says, busyness does not mean that you are a faithful or a fruitful Christian. It only means that you're busy, just like everyone else. Like everyone else, your joy, your heart, and your soul are in danger. We don't pay attention to this danger and we don't let God speak into it because we're so busy and we're so hurried. So to the degree that beauty causes us to just stop and slow down, that can be a good thing. 
We also live in a culture that's full of noise. Noise, you know, hurry and noise, both internal and external. There's just so much noise. And so intentionally stopping to enjoy the beauty of God's creation, it combats these things. And it cultivates instead silence and attentiveness. Silence and attentiveness. These things are pretty critical if we're to really pay attention to God, his presence, and what he's saying in our lives. We've got to have some space for silence and attentiveness. It's interesting working in college ministry. We often put on weekend conferences and retreats, and one of the things we'll do is we'll have a few hours of silence that will invite students to nobody talk to each other, everybody turn off your phone or whatever, and just be silent and, and pray and reflect. And students today, honestly, they're terrified of this time at first. They often go into it with a lot of apprehension because it's so foreign to them. They have no space for silence in their lives. But the, the silent part of the retreat often turns out to be the most transformative thing for them. The way that they encountered God the most powerfully. Because, again, they just have no space for it in their day-to-day lives on campus. There's no silence. And when they finally do get quiet, when they finally do get attentive, wow, they all of a sudden encounter God in powerful ways they never knew was possible because their lives are so full of noise and so full of hurry. So to the degree that seeing beauty quiets us down, combats hurry and noise, and cultivates silence and attentiveness, it puts our hearts in a position where we can know God more deeply and more fully. What if, in our stressed-out, frenzied, hurried culture, Christians modeled a different kind of life? What if our lives looked a little different? What if we weren't consumed by hurry and noise? What if we weren't half paying attention all the time? What if we weren't so stressed and rushed? I'm not saying we should all become monks or anything like that. I don't think the call to be faithful is a call to, you know, zero noise and to never be busy. But that's generally not our problem. Usually our problem is that we have zero silence And we're always busy. But God's beauty calls us out of that, calls us to be attentive to him. Second thing beauty can cause, so it causes us to slow down. Beauty also, it causes us to marvel. It causes us to marvel. When we see something beautiful, we say, wow, that's that's amazing. And we marvel. And that's a good thing. God gets Job to marvel at what he's made. Job comes away from this encounter just marveling at who God is. By and large, uh, our culture is, is, I think, losing its ability to marvel. I, think, I don't know, if we're just inundated by so much stuff, we're overwhelmed, it's hard to take it all in. We, we just uh, have lost the ability to marvel, I think. A silly example. So my dad loves to tell stories now from his growing up, and one story he'll tell me is when his family got their first TV set. My dad was a teenager at the time, and they just thought it was so cool, so amazing. This, this TV was probably really little, and it was black and white, but they just thought, wow, TV, you know, there's, like, there's things going on like way far away, but they're being broadcast into my living room. How cool is this? And there was like no choice for what you could watch. There's like sometimes only one thing on, and looking back, some of it wasn't even very good, but... They just marveled at the fact that they could watch anything at all, that that anything was being broadcast from far away into their little home. Fast forward to now, I, my father's son, have like, I don't know, 700 channels. And it's common to hear me flip through them and complain, there's nothing on. (laughs) 
I don't marvel at it at all. And, and you know, it's a silly example, but by and large, I think our culture is, is losing a lot of its ability to marvel. Because, you know, I don't know, we've, like we've seen everything, we've been there, we've done that, we're just bombarded by information, we can't possibly take it all in, so we shut it out. Um, but beauty causes us to marvel, and that's really important. That's something our hearts need to be able to do to have a full, rich Christian life and a full, rich Christian worship. We've got to be able to marvel. So beauty is important to the degree that it combats indifference. I was trying to think, what's the opposite of marvel? I don't know if this is the best word, but we'll say indifference. I think that's, that's just kind of what happens to us when we lose our ability to marvel. We just kind of say, eh, there's nothing on. I don't know. Uh, and that's, that's that kind of posture, just being indifferent, that's, that's toxic to a Christian spirituality. That's, at the heart of it is to love God and love our neighbor. We can't do those things if we're just indifferent. Uh, but our culture fosters a lot of indifference, I think. You know, we're able to just be like, eh, whatever. That was my friends and my favorite word growing up as teenagers, you know, grow up in the 90s on a steady diet of grunge music, and just like, whatever. We could dismiss anything, no matter how hard someone tried to inspire us. We could just blow it up, whatever. And we can take that posture into our Christian life, into our worship times, into our worship experience. You know, we can just sort of come into a service like this and sort of sit back, bored, just waiting to be entertained. We can open up the Bible and be like, oh yeah, I've read that. We can hear the gospel message and go, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. That's cool. I mean, What? These things are, we need to marvel at who God is. We need a capacity to marvel. And to the degree that beauty cultivates uh, that capacity, it's a good thing. It's a very good thing. And a culture that's just often indifferent and bored and hard to hold our attention, hard to capture our imaginations, we need to be able to marvel. So beauty combats indifference. And on the other hand, beauty cultivates what I'll call wonder and awe. Wonder and awe. Wonder and awe are really the appropriate posture and the appropriate response when it comes to God. God inspires wonder and awe by how amazing and wonderful and awesome he is. To really encounter God leads to wonder and awe. It did so with Job. Job came away from his encounter with God just full of wonder and awe. And that's appropriate. When you meet God for who he really is, that's what happens. It should inspire wonder and awe. The more we, you know, we cultivate our capacity to have wonder and awe, I think the more deeply we can know God. I want to go back to our sunset image here. Um, I remember one day, there were a lot of days I was out here uh, just pondering this, and one day in particular, I was really just filled with awe and filled with wonder, and I started praising God. I was just kind of taking it all in, and I thought, how amazing is this? And the, the sun was setting with clouds, and so every time I looked a different way, the, like the color pattern was different, and the, the waves were splashing on the rocks in a different way, and just everywhere I turned, there was something new and beautiful, and I just thought, how amazing is this? Like, how cool are, are waves? And how amazing a thing is water. And like the birds would dive into the water and get their food. And other, like, other creatures were on the rocks feeding there. And, and the color, the various colors that the sunset produced. And then I would think, like, how, how is it that like the, the sun is up there and earth and they're all perfectly suspended in such a way that provide this perfect light and perfect warmth and sustains life and has for thousands and thousands of years. This is amazing. I was just in awe. I was like, how did, how, God, how did you make all this? 
I was just praising God. Like, I don't know. It's beyond me. How did you make all this? And then a thought popped into my mind that made me stop talking. And I actually, I think God put it there. So this thought came to me, which is, you know how easy this is for God? This is easy for him. You know, here I am just amazed and astounded at all the properties and the things that I'm seeing and the beauty of it all and how it fits together and works perfectly together and sustains life. And I'm like, how on earth? But for God, that's easy. And honestly, what I was looking at was just like this little crag of coast in Massachusetts. And meanwhile, this scene is playing out on coastlines all over the world. Miles and miles of coastlines all over the world. It's been happening 24 hours a day, seven days a week for thousands and thousands of years, whether anyone's looking or not. That's all easy for God. It's like, oh yeah, it's easy. And, and Job is faced with all these things that for him are just so beyond him. He doesn't get these things. He can't do these things. But for God, they're easy. That just took my level of wonder and awe to a whole new level. It's amazing. I mean, we think we're smart. We think we can make cool stuff. We think we're capable. We think we're creative. We think pretty highly of ourselves. But come on. God is so far beyond us, so much smarter, so much more capable. The things he makes are so much more durable, so much more complex, so much more lasting, so much more amazing. It's all beautiful at the same time. He deserves our deepest wonder and awe. And to the degree that seeing beauty helps us cultivate a heart of wonder and awe, it's critical for our spiritual growth. In Jesus helps us to see the wonder and the beauty and the genius and the goodness of this God who made these things. What if, in our indifferent, cynical, easily bored culture, Christians modeled a different way? What if we were people known for the level of wonder and awe that we bring to any given situation, that we bring to the places that we live and work? we bring into our relationships, and most of all, that we bring into our times of worship before this God, if they weren't ho-hum and boring, but places of just wonder and awe before this God, where people could walk in here and be like, whoa, there's something way bigger than me going on here. What if we were like that? Well, I think seeing a, a habit of seeing and pondering God's beauty can cultivate some of that in us. Finally, the third thing, beauty causes us to slow down, causes us to marvel, but also causes us to feel small. I think that's a good thing. You'll often hear people say that when they like, see the Grand Canyon or something, or they sit underneath a, a sky full of stars and, or see a you know, meteor. Just think, wow, it really makes you feel small. And it should. It's good to feel small in an appropriate way. It's a good thing for our spiritual lives. Because feeling small combats pride and self-centeredness, which, according to the Bible, are really at the heart of pretty much everything that's wrong with us and with our world. It's pride and self-centeredness. You know, we have, at the heart of our broken condition as people is this almost unbelievable audacity we have, this unbelievable capacity we have to think more highly of ourselves than we really should. It goes back to creation. I'll take beauty itself for an example. So I've been talking all about kind of natural beauty, the beauty of creation, uh, which is really important. There's also a lot of man-made beauty in the world as well. 
And all that's really great and wonderful too, and can have similar effects. Man-made beauty that we encounter can cause us to slow down, it can cause us to marvel, it can cause us to feel small. And it is part of our being made in God's image to create things. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. We create things too. We can make beautiful things, and, and that's all wonderful. But, you know, it doesn't always have the, the positive effect. Sometimes when we make beautiful things, our propensity is to take credit for it and to think far more highly of ourselves and of what we've made than we really ought to. But really, we couldn't make anything beautiful apart from God. Nothing. I mean, for one, he made us to begin with and gives us the capacity and the ability to create and to make beautiful things. But even still, even the most innovative, creative, you know, convention-defying artist out there can't do it apart from God and the order and the patterns that he established and created. A master chef cultivates and works with things that are cultivated from the earth that God made. And he relies on their properties. A painter relies on the properties of oil and water and canvas and color and how they blend. That's all stuff that God designed and God made. Even the most crazy flamboyant guitar player who, who improvises for hours on end relies on the order and the patterns of, of um, what's that word, octaves and, and sound waves and how they work. You couldn't improvise without that stuff. All things that God established and God ordained and God made. We couldn't make anything without God. And the things we make, they're amazing. Humans can make amazing things, things that do cause us awe and wonder. But even those things, you know, when, we take, when we lose God as our frame of reference, we have a totally distorted picture of how great those things are that we make. I love the story in Genesis of the Tower of Babel. Uh, you may have read, it's in Genesis chapter 11, and there's some people in Babel who are enjoying their God-given capacity to make stuff, and they can make some pretty cool stuff. And they turn to each other and they say, let us make for ourselves a city with a tower with its top that reaches to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. In the very next verse, it says, and the Lord came down to see the tower and the city that they were building. I just think it's hilarious. So these people, they're, they're so impressed so amazed by what they can do. We're going to build this city, this tower. This is the most amazing tower you've ever seen. Its height is in the heavens. Wow. Meanwhile, God is saying, wait, what are they making down there? Let me look. Oh, it looks like a city. And Oh, I see. It's a tower. Right. Just couldn't see. Uh, it, you know, it's funny, but it, it just goes to show we have this totally distorted perspective of how great we are and how great are the things we make. The things we make are great, but they're nothing compared to the greatness of what God can make and what God has made. You know, we can put a man on the moon. That's amazing. God made the moon. He made the moon. Could we do that? No, not with whatever, without any budgetary constraints and all the time in the world. We couldn't make a moon and have it suspend and do the things that it does. And honestly, you know, as moons go, like our moon, it's all right. But you know, God's made lots of other moons that are actually lots bigger and more impressive than the one we see and are so impressed by. So we couldn't make anything without God, and even the things we make, they're nothing compared to the things that God can make. Uh, so to the degree that beauty and looking at what God makes makes us feel small, 
That's good. That's appropriate. It cultivates humility. Humility, many have said, is really the, the chiefest among the Christian virtues. It's at the heart of the Christian life and what it means to know God. The more we grow in our humility, the deeper and richer our spiritual life with Jesus will be. And looking at beauty and pondering beauty cultivates humility. Now, humility is not poor self-esteem. It's not thinking less of us than we should. Instead, humility is, th- is a proper sense of our own smallness, our own limitations in light of a great and awesome God. It's a proper and truthful sense of who we are. Humility basically acknowledges you know, God is God and I'm not. God is God and I am not. And that's the truth. And Job comes to realize that. Let's look at what Job actually did say. So Job didn't have much to say once God started talking. But he said two things. One is in chapter 40, verses 3 to 5. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. God quieted him down. And then, at the beginning of chapter 42, Job speaks again after God has finished what he's had to say. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My eyes had heard of you, but now my, eye, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, this is humility on Job's part. This is not poor self-esteem. In our modern sensibilities, we hear some of the things Job said, and we're like, oh, no, no one should ever feel that way about themselves. But this is just true humility. Job has a truthful, accurate sense of who he is in light of who God is. He knows for sure now that God is God and he is not. And that's actually good news. Don't feel bad for Job here. Job's fine. In fact, Job, I think, is quite satisfied by the end of this book. It's funny, God never even answers his questions about suffering We think the lesson of Job has to do with suffering. Well, God doesn't even give any answers about suffering. The ultimate lesson here for Job is that God is God, and he's not. And somehow that's enough for Job. He's perfectly content, perfectly satisfied, and has a level of joy that's deeper than anyone else around him. Philip Yancey says this uh, in his book, The Bible That Jesus Read. He has a great discourse on Job says, God did not answer all of Job's questions, but God's very presence caused his doubts to melt away. Job learned that God cared about him intimately and that God rules the world. That seemed enough. Job learned that God cared about him intimately. My My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. You're personal to me. You're real. You intimately care for me. But Job also has learned this God rules the world. And somehow knowing those two truths, 
God's care for him and God's rule of the world, that's enough. Produces a deep satisfaction that can't be found anywhere else. That's what real joy is. And these two truths are at the heart of the gospel. That there is a God who rules the world, but who intimately cares for us. That both of those things are true simultaneously. That is the good news of the Christian faith, of the gospel message. And the more we appreciate one, the more amazing the other one begins to to seem in our eyes. The more we realize how much and how grandly and how well God rules the world, the more amazing it is to ponder that he cares intimately for us. And seeing beauty, intentionally taking time to look and to ponder and to consider the beauty of what God has made, it cultivates these things in us, both an awareness of God who rules the world and of his intimate care for us. As we continue in worship this morning, we're going to have the chance to take communion. You guys can come on up if you want. And communion kind of marks the ultimate expression of the gospel message, this God who rules the world and who cares intimately for us. See, Jesus is the one person who could answer all of God's rhetorical questions. So God asked Job over 70 rhetorical questions in the passage. They're all like, Job, do you know this? Can you do this? Were you there when I did this? And they're rhetorical because for Job, the answer is no, of course not. Job doesn't know what God knows. Job can't do what God can do. Job wasn't there when God was creating the world, and neither are us. The answer for us to all these rhetorical questions is no. But Jesus Christ is the one human being who ever lived who could actually answer those questions, yes. He was there at the foundation of the world. He was there when the stars were being suspended in their place. He was there when the borders of the sea and the land were established. He gets it. He's been there. He understands it in and out from the grand scale to the intimate details. Jesus is in his very nature God. He can answer those questions, yes. He rules the world. Yet he cares intimately for us. This Jesus who rules the world entered into our human experience, into our human condition, and ultimately did for us the most important thing that we could never accomplish or never do for ourselves, that he took upon himself all of the punishment and all of the shame that we deserve for our brokenness, for our rebellion, for our self-centeredness, and our pride in the face of God. Jesus took that all upon himself so that we could be right with God. And that's what we celebrate when we come to communion. It's something that some of you have done lots of times and it can lose its awe and it can lose its wonder. But you're going to hear when you come up here some of the most amazing words that you will ever hear. Even if you've heard them before, they're still the most amazing thing you'll ever hear. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. So come with a posture of wonder and awe to this celebration. Let me pray for us. Lord, we really don't have a whole lot to say before God as awesome as you. We just, it's appropriate to just marvel. I pray, Lord, that you would cultivate that capacity in us. You would teach us how to stop, how to ponder, how to slow down, that you would build into us a different character of life than what we see around us. You would call us out, 
of the patterns that choke our spiritual growth. Call us into life with you. Teach us how to see beauty with an awareness of our creator. Help us to see beauty in a way that helps us see you ultimately in a way that transforms us by your power. And we thank you, Lord, that both these things are true, that you rule the world and you care for us intimately. We can explain that, but to a degree, we can't even get our minds around that. We can just worship you. So we'll do that now in Jesus' name. Amen.